morning and Becky, first thing she said to me was, it's Sabbath. And that is a wonderful word in our house. We love Shabbat, Shabbat. And um, I've shared a number of times over the years. I never get over it. But one of the things that has been a result of us being able to visit different, I would call them non-Christian places of worship, Hindu temples, Buddhist temples, mosques, two things that are lacking. Joy and music. You never see them, ever. And it's so different when the people of God get together. Where else could a group of moral failures and forgiven sinners get together and celebrate what their God has done for them? And that is why joy and music have been a hallmark of the church for two millennia. And it is here this morning. And so we're so grateful for Pastor Doug and his whole crew who lead us so well. I invite you to open your Bibles all the way to the end of your New Testament to a small letter inspired by the Holy Spirit. Thank you to Chris Sosnowski for reading this text for us this morning. From that little computer he reads off. <laughs> reading off our phones. I have a brother who loves to read big novels, and he's told me he's read six, seven hundred page novels on his phone. I'm like, wow, he needs a magnifying glass. First Peter, uh, we have two letters in our New Testament by this apostle, Peter, one of the apostles of Jesus. This is the first one. It is a very small letter, 105 verses, brimming with the theme of hope. That's the whole point of this letter. And hence the subtitle of our series, Finding Hope in a Hostile World. It's no surprise we live in a hostile world. No surprise we need hope. And the people of God need hope. Kids need hope. Young people need hope. Adults need hope. Senior saints need hope. We all need hope if we're going to go on. Peter's message, though, is this. Real hope is available, but it's only available for those who have been born again. Those who know Christ. Those who know God have gone through what we call spiritual rebirth, meaning they have come to God on his terms. That's the bottom line. We can't come to God in our terms. We want to, but we can't. We can only come if we have been transformed by faith in his son, Jesus. And so what Peter tells us in his letter, he declares that a true follower of Jesus can have a living hope because their faith is in a living God. I remember when that gripped me as a teenager. And it has pulled me forward for decades. And I am so thankful for what God has done in delivering just this one moral failure for his kingdom. And Peter's letter is directed. Today we come to the next section. We started this series last weekend. The section we're in today, verses 13 down through verse 21, Peter is now going to talk about the pursuit of holiness. Jerry Bridges has a classic with that title. Again, I read that as a teenager and it just gripped me the pursuit of holiness. And here's Peter's theme today. Don't miss this. There is a deep connection, according to Peter, between holiness and finding biblical hope and joy. And his theme is this. You can't, even if you're born again, you cannot find biblical hope and joy unless you are committed to being a holy person. And Peter's very clear. Holiness doesn't save anybody. The pursuit of holiness doesn't save anybody. The gospel is we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. 
But those who are truly saved have a deep hunger to be holy. And every time they fall, they get back up and repent and they keep going forward. In chapter 1, verses 13 to 21, our text before us today, Peter's going to give us two, two key ingredients. They're both in two paragraphs. So we've got first ingredient, first paragraph, second ingredient, second paragraph. This is laid out pretty much straight out. And the two ingredients are this. Number one, preparing our minds. The importance of having a determined mindset to be holy. Nobody. <laughs> no, I mean, no, nobody becomes holy by accident. You don't just kind of drift into holiness. It is the result of determined steps every single day. And secondly, then, fearing God. Those are the two ingredients Peter's going to tell us are essential for the pursuit of holiness. And as many have reminded us, holy people are happy people. And that is why this is such an encouraging message today, really, before us. So we're going to dive into these two ingredients. I hope you have a Bible or your device in front of you. It's very important. We're looking at what the text says, what God has said. And with that, we're going to dive in. Ingredient number one to be holy, and that is this, preparing our minds. Verses 13 to 16, that is what this paragraph is all about. And it begins with a very important word. Look at your text. What is the word? And in most English translations, the Greek word is translated, therefore. The literal Greek can be translated for this reason. So however you translate it, what's the point? It's a connection word. It's a word connecting. It's a word that's summarizing what came before. What came before is verses 3 through 12, which is a summary of the gospel that has been bought and delivered by the triune God. And we looked at this last weekend. You have a paragraph about what the Father's done, you have a paragraph of what the Son has done, and you have a paragraph of what the Holy Spirit's done. That is the verses right before us. And so in light of the gospel, now Peter is saying, therefore, since the triune God has bought those who know him a sure inheritance, that's what's been done. Therefore, now he's going to go forward. This is what a believer's life should look like. Not to get saved, but because they are saved. That's the difference. I'm going to read verses 13 to 16 if you would follow. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. That's a direct reference to his next coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Therefore, we are called to pursue holiness in full confidence of our gospel standing if we know Christ is Savior. Now that brings up a question. What does the word holy mean? And there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of fuzzy thinking. Some of us are newer to our Bibles here. Some of us have been in church. Some of us have been in the Scriptures for years. But some of us are fairly new to the Scriptures. And so we're really not, you know, we, we hear the Word, but we're not really sure exactly what it means. So let's just talk real simple here. What does the word holy mean? Uh, when most people hear the word holy, I'll tell you what typically is our default. We typically think, oh, moral purity. That's not wrong. It's just incomplete. 
That's just incomplete. Moral purity is part of what holiness means, but by no means is it the complete picture. So what does the word holy mean? Well, to do that, you need to kind of do a word study. You've got to go in and look at how the word is used. Very first time the word shows up in the Bible is in Genesis 2, and it doesn't apply to a person. It applies to a day. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So it didn't even apply to a person. That's not moral purity. The next time, the very next time the word shows up in the Bible, it applies to dirt. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, you got a guy named Mo, big Mo, Moses standing by this bush that's on fire but not being consumed. That's weird. And then Yahweh, the living God, speaks to him out of this burning bush. And this is what he says. Do not come any closer. Good idea when you're standing next to a burning bush. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So the first time the word shows up, it applies to a day. Second time the word shows up, it applies to dirt. So it's like, well, what's going on? What's this word mean? And then when you start digging in the Bible, it applies to all kinds of other stuff. The word itself, holy, in the Old Testament was written largely in Hebrew, some in Aramaic, mostly in Hebrew. The word itself comes from an ancient Hebrew word that means to cut or to separate or take apart. The Pharisees that were the uh, leaders that arose during the intertestamental period, they called God's people to be different than was a good movement originally when it arose after the Old Testament era, before the New Testament era. The Pharisees were known as the separated ones, and they were calling God's people back to the Torah, back to holiness. Who can argue against that? Back to separated living. That's the root word of the word holy. But then you dive into the Hebrew Scriptures and you find out the word holy is applied to all kinds of normal stuff, really bland stuff. For example, the word holy is applied to bread at times or to dirt or to water, or pots. There are pots actually were used in the tabernacle that are called holy. They're to be separate and used differently. It also applies to linen, that stuff we sleep on, sheets. It's applied at times to a house, or anointing oil, or a field, or even a city. These various items are to be set apart at times, to be used for the things of God and not to be used in the normal way. That's the key. Not to be used in the normal way. So therefore, when we speak of holiness, young people, when you hear the word holiness, it's not just a religious word with a religious mumbo-jumbo attached to it. We're speaking of a very specific approach to life that is to be separate from the world around us. If you know anything about the ancient Israelites, the Hebrews, the neighborhood that they were in was a rough neighborhood. <laughs> All these ites that lived around them. The Malachites, the Perizzites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Termites. All these ites that lived around them. Not a nice collection of people. Very depraved. God is very clear, explicitly clear in the Hebrew Bible about how wicked the neighborhood is that he saved his people out of, and he keeps calling them to be different. That's the word holy. Separate, cut apart, different than, other than what is around you. 
And that is really, so you can see why the word, more, you know, the phrase moral purity, it's part of what holiness is about, but it's incomplete. It's not the complete picture. Holiness is about being a different kind of person. And so, meaning what? Well, different standards in the world, different motives than my neighbors operate on, different methods, different ways. A believer's life has to have a completely different fragrance about it than an unbeliever's life. Back to what I said originally, that means a determined mindset, and that means nobody, and I mean nobody, becomes holy by accident. You don't just drift into this. That's Peter's whole emphasis here about having a determined mindset. He's very clear with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope. Those are very intentional words. Now look at verse 16. He's quoting from somewhere. Where's he quoting from? Quoting from an Old Testament book that a lot of Christians avoid, unfortunately, the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus was a manual for the priest, how to lead God's people in worship. It's a great book. And it's a book centered on a very important theme. And that theme is the holiness of God and the holiness of his people. How his people, those who really know him, not just church attenders, not just religious people, but those that really have been transformed by the gospel, how they are to look different than those in the world. And at the heart of Leviticus, in that book, chapters 18 to 22, we have what scholars call the holiness code. It's not called that in the Bible, but it's called, we call it the holiness code. What is it? It's a number of chapters that offer straightforward teaching about what God requires of those who claim to know him. And here's the key again. I'm going to keep saying this. Not in order to be saved. Bible never teaches we're saved by our attempts to be holy, by our attempts to obey the Ten Commandments, by our attempts to do good works. The Bible is clear from Genesis to Revelation. That is not how you're saved. You're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. But the Bible also says those who are truly saved, their faith is never alone. It is followed up by a desire to honor God and be holy. That means salvation, faith alone, in Christ alone, is followed up by good works. Good works often get poo-pooed. It's an ancient Hebrew word that means, you know, downplayed downplayed. There's good news about good works. There's lots of good news about good works. That good works get misunderstood. A lot of people think good works is somehow how you try to earn your salvation. It's not the Bible. But good work, the good news about good works is they are evidence that we know God and he is at work in us. Coming to grips, by the way, with the book of Exodus led a very popular preacher back in England, back in the 1600s, to preach a series of sermons on one verse. Leviticus 10, verse 3, one phrase in that one verse. Among those who approach me, I must be regarded as holy. That one verse led Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a very popular young 30-something pastor in London back in the 1600s, powerful preacher, large congregations. And he developed a whole series, 14 messages devoted to that one phrase, among those who approach me, I must be regarded as holy. I had an elder once in one of my other churches one time that said, you know what? You could preach on the holiness of God every Sunday. He said, and I would never get tired of hearing it. Never get tired of hearing it. In those 14 sermons, which eventually became 
published into this book, Gospel Worship. Burroughs talks about the importance of preparation for worship, especially he talks about corporate worship. But things like he's got a whole sermon on preparing for corporate worship or preparing to hear the word or honoring God in our prayer. What's interesting, some of you know the name R.C. Sproul, who's had a huge impact on the American church before he died in December 2017. And R.C. Sproul, I remember listening to him one day preach on the holiness of God. And he said, Jeremiah Burroughs' book, Gospel Worship, he said, is one of the five books that have most impacted his life outside of the Bible. And I thought, wow, when someone like R.C. Sproul says, that book is one of the five that have most impacted him, I've got to get it. And he was right. Very interesting. Read one quote from one of the sermons, Sermon 2. Think of this as a determined mindset and the call to be holy. I'm just plugging in right into the middle of a sermon, Sermon 2. He is resolved, God is, that he shall have the glory of his holiness above all things. Therefore, the angels, when they are celebrating the glory of God, do not say, think of this, the angels flying around the throne, they do not say, Lord Almighty, Almighty, Almighty. They are not saying, Lord Omniscient, Omniscient, Omniscient. But they are crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Some of you know in ancient Hebrew that if you wanted to emphasize something, you repeated it. And on a very rare occasion, you would elevate it to the third degree, say it three times. The only attribute of God elevated to the third degree is holiness. And the seraphim cry that out as they circle the throne, as they cry out, holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God therein appears to be the glory of God above all. God stands upon it that he will appear to be a holy God. And that had a huge impact on R.C. Sproul as he wrote his classic, The Holiness of God. You want to know the other book that had a huge impact on Sproul for writing The Holiness of God? Moby Dick. Especially the chapter on the whiteness of the whale. So gospel fear, Moby Dick. If you've never read R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God, I would encourage you, I could not encourage you enough to get a hold of that book and read it. It is truly a transfer. I remember when I read it as a young pastor and it absolutely changed my perspective. I want to turn to one other passage in the New Testament that talks about a determined mindset and renewing of our mind. Some of you know this passage, some of you don't, but Romans chapter 12. Romans is the longest letter of the Apostle Paul we have in our New Testament. We have 13 of Paul's letters. Romans is the longest of the letters. It's the most theologically rich and also missiologically. It's a kind of a theological missionary track in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Well known by God's people about the mind and the importance of having a renewed mind. Same thing Peter's talking about. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, got another one of those summary words, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. That's what holiness means, being separate. 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the Bible's telling us a true Christian is changed by the renewing of their mind. Meaning what? A deliberate decision. Young people, you have to make a deliberate decision to live in a way that focuses on who God is, his truth, and the scriptures. And Paul tells us here, even though God is at work in the believer through the Holy Spirit, the believer still plays a role in their growth, in their sanctification, in their holiness. And so the bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, young people, is this. Renewing our minds and pursuing holiness requires deliberate discipline of our minds. All the time. All the time. If we quit being vigilant, we will drift into all sorts of places that are dark and creepy and destructive unless we are deliberately staying fixed on who God is. I have to make a decision. For example, let's get practical. Put the cookies down on the main floor here for a second. Okay? How, do you, how, how do we do this? Tell us, preacher. What do we do? Well, I have to make a decision. I have to be immersed in this book. Not dabble a few verses here and there. When you look at the life of Jesus, when you see his ministry in the Gospels, and him wandering around preaching and teaching and discipling, this was not a guy who just dabbled in the Scriptures. He had memorized large chunks of the Torah. He knew the Scriptures. He quoted the Scriptures. He lived in the Scriptures. Phrase daily quiet time isn't necessarily a bad phrase, but it can imply that, oh, that's that moment in my life when I spend a few minutes reading this and I read a devotional. That's not bad. It's just not enough. I need to live in the Scriptures if I'm going to stay fixed. What are some other decisions I have to make? What are some other determined mindset decisions? I'll tell you a big one. A decision to avoid pornography. Something that is absolutely destroying American culture and Western culture. From within. And with the access to the internet, it's more consuming than ever. And I tell you what, it's taking out more and more young girls and females than ever before. Also, a decision about what kind of movies I'm going to watch, what kind of books I'm going to read, what kind of trash or moral filth am I going to watch on TV or streaming platforms. I have to make deliberate decisions about how much time I'm going to spend on social media, on Facebook, or on video games. It's amazing how many 20 and 30-something guys, even married, and the amount of time they waste on video games. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, if we're going to be holy, we have to be committed and deliberate in our choices. Time is limited. Energy is limited. And we can only do so much. I have to be vigilant to kill sinful habits by the power of Scripture and His Spirit. The Bible teaches that if a true Christian wants hope, the whole theme of Peter, if I want to mature in Christ, do you want to mature in Christ? If you want to find real joy, if you want to grow spiritually, if you want your marriage to thrive, if you want peace, if you want joy, real joy in your life, then I have to have a determined mindset to be different. I have to have a determined mindset to launch an all-out war on sinful habits and tendencies in my life. So you, because they're always there lurking about. I have to make a deliberate decision to attack the roots of, of lust, of bitterness, of fear, of profanity, of gluttony, of a harsh tongue, a critical spirit, abusing alcohol, 
being dishonest and deceptive, and on and on the list will go. That is why Romans 8.13 uses the phrase, Paul does, you can translate it very literally, kill sin. Kill it. That's what led the great Puritan John Owen to, he preached a whole series of sermons on, we call it the title of the book today, The Mortification of Sin. There's a big word we rarely use, but it's a whole sermon series based on Romans 8.13, calling the believer not just to dabble at this, but to make it an all-out offensive, and it summons us to kill sin at the root. I mean, it's an amazing, one more just brief quote from Burroughs. He's talking about the importance of killing sin and the fear of God and the holiness of God. This comes from Sermon 5, and I'm only doing these two quotes this morning just to give you a flavor of the kind of literature that's available out there that we can read along with the Scriptures that will pull us forward. This is from Sermon 5. There must be much reverence and much fear when you come into the presence of God to worship Him. Ask yourself this morning, what was your attitude as you came in here? What was my attitude when we came in here this morning? Not what was the attitude of your spouse or your kids. What was your attitude as you came in here this morning? There must be much reverence and much fear when we come into the presence of God to worship him. And he's generally speaking of corporate worship. This also applies to private worship, but his comments were largely applied to corporate worship like this. Do, you do not glorify God as God unless you come into his presence with much fear and reverence in his great name. Fear, listen to this, fear in worshiping God is so necessary that many times in Scripture we find that the very worship of God is also called the fear of God. That's the kind of meat that helps pull you forward. And that is, again, why R.C. Sproul, when he wrote his classic Holiness of God, drew heavily off this. True story about that book. I was a young pastor, and I was at one of these pastoral get-togethers in our district, and that book had just come out, and that book has shaped me in many ways throughout my decades in ministry, but it just came out. I was sitting there with these guys, most of them older than me, and I remember this old pastor, he was like 42, and he was sitting over here, <laughs> sitting over here, and I'll never forget how flippant he was. Because Sproul's book had just come out and then the video series had come out based on the book. And he said, oh yeah, Sproul, yeah, holiness guy. He goes, I found that whole series a yawner. And I thought, whoa, whoa. This old dude's lost it. I mean, what? Here's what's sad. Within less than another year or two, he'd left his wife and he'd left his ministry. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, young people, when you take your eyes off the holiness of God, lots of things will happen, and they're all bad. And here's a guy who was supposed to be handling the things of God and was bored by the holiness of God. And look what happened. And that can happen to any of us at any moment told you about John Owen basing that whole sermon series on Romans 8.12. Here's just a sample of his book, Mortification of Sin. I love the way he words this about an all-out offensive and a prepared mindset. We need to continue to attack sin daily with the weapons that will kill it. 
This is the key to warfare. Listen, even when we think a sin is dead because it's quiet, we must labor to give it new wounds and new blows every day. We must swing the axe at the root. I love the wording there. That leads Peter now to his second ingredient for holiness, and that is exactly what we've been talking about because he's go hand in hand, prepared mindset, and now secondly, verses 17 to 21, he's going to talk about the importance of fearing God. So if you go back to Peter, 1 Peter, verses 17 through 21, here's the second ingredient. First, I have to have a determined mindset, and it can never slow down. Secondly, I have to fear God. Since you call on a father who judges each work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here. He's talking to those who are truly saved. Live out your time as foreigners here in, what's the text say? Reverent fear. Now, the most repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. And yet we come to many passages in the Bible that say, but fear God. We're going to talk about what that means in just a second. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. You weren't bought with silver or gold from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. That's how inextricably hope and holiness and fearing God are all weaved together. You can't really separate them. Live out, verse 17, look at it. Live out your time as foreigners in reverent fear. Now, let's just get real simple, real basic. What does it mean to fear God? A lot of misunderstanding. So let me give you two Things that it absolutely mean. It can mean more than this, but let me give you two essential ingredients for fearing what it means. One, to fear God is to remember that God is the great judge of all the earth. And that one day, you will stand before him. Every single one of us will stand before the living God. Whether you're saved or not, you're going to stand before God someday and give an account of your life. Not for your spouse, not for your kids, not your friends. You, one-on-one with the Creator. And one of the most common themes of Jesus is that we will give an account to God. Two verses from Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, which is a sermon and a letter. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for all mankind to die once. That directly undermines reincarnation. We don't die again and 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 reborn. One time, we have one life, we die once, and after this to face judgment. Or Hebrews 10, 31. Very sobering verse. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To fear God is to remember, friends, to remember, beloved, that you and I are accountable to God for our lives, and we will face him one day. Second thing fearing God means, I'll unpack this a little bit more, it's a reminder for true Christians that we are to stand in awe of God. You know that most of the language of fearing God is targeted to God's people, not necessarily to pagan nations. There is a command, but most of the talk about fearing God is directed to his people, and they are to stand in awe of him. When the Bible speaks of fear of the Lord for a believer, 
It's not a groveling kind of fear of somebody that's about to be tortured. It's not a groveling fear of, say, a slave and a master who's cruel, like you see in Uncle Tom's cabin. It's not that kind of fear. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he related it to something he called filial fear. Filial fear, from the Latin for family. Family connection, that kind of fear. And and Luther said it's it's like a healthy family unit where the children have a love and a deep respect for their dad, their parents. That's the kind of fear we're talking about, a reverent, holy fear. And for the true Christian, to fear the Lord is to have a sense of respect and awe of God. Quite honestly, ladies and gentlemen, quite honestly, this is what is so often lacking in contemporary Bible-based churches and is quite often lacking in American evangelicalism is this holiness. There's such a casual, flippant approach that so many today take when it comes to even corporate worship. And there is to be a gravitas to it. I love the way Pastor Doug helps facilitate that up here. And those on our worship team and constructs the whole worship service through readings, through the scriptures, the preaching, all of it, the goal and the great goal of it is to, is to create a sense of gravitas that we are in the presence of a holy God. Some of you have heard again of Jerry Bridges. He has a book out a couple years ago. I love the title because it's kind of one of those jolt titles. The Joy of Fearing God. That just strikes most people as odd. But that's the title of the book. Great book. And he says this. Great perspective giver. This one paragraph. He said, there was a time when committed Christians were known as God-fearing people. This was a badge of honor. But somewhere along the line, we've lost that. Now the idea of fearing God seems like a relic from the past. And that is to our detriment. The fear of God is actually as relevant today as in bygone generations. And strange as it may seem, there is joy in fearing God. The Bible says God delights in those who fear him. And holds out the promise of blessing. That's what's at stake in the fear of God. And the Bible goes on to say that one of the benefits of cultivating a fear of God, if you know Christ, is it will actually discourage you from sinning. And protect you from destructive, crazy behaviors that we're all prone to. Proverbs 16, 6, the fear of the Lord helps someone avoid evil. So one of the signs, obviously, that someone is truly saved and knows God is this hunger, this desire to be holy and pulls them forward in holy. You can attend church, some do for years, and they're just so casual about obedience issues, start to wonder, do they really know who God is? All right, we're going to get ready to land the plane in just a second, but before we do, before our summons, just a couple reminders why holiness is such a big deal just in case you haven't heard it. Let me just give you four reasons why holiness is such a big deal. Young people, I really want your attention, especially kids. Why is holiness such a big deal? Here's why. Number one, because holiness glorifies God. Meaning what? Makes him look good. When God's people are holy, God receives more fame. His name receives more accolades. His kingdom advances and his gospel advances. And ultimately, God's foremost passion is for his own glory. Second reason holiness is so important is because it confirms our salvation. 
in a word, assurance. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Jerry Bridges in the pursuit of holiness, quote, the only safe evidence that we are in Christ is a holy life, close quote. First, holiness glorifies God. Secondly, it confirms that our salvation is real, not because we're saved by our attempts to be holy, but holiness and the desire to be holy is evidence we're saved. Thirdly, holiness is connected to some great things in the Bible, joy. Reasons there's so many joyless professing Christians around is they're not pursuing holiness. It also is connected to spiritual health, physical health, emotional stability. So again, the old quote, holy people are happy people. They're joyful people. And a fourth reason why holiness is so important according to the Bible, it attracts others to the gospel. Matthew 5, 16. Jesus says, let your light shine before others. In this sense, that means good works. Let your good works shine before others. Why? So they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. That's one of the, another good news about good works points is that when unbelievers see good works in the life of a Christian, it actually is an evangelistic draw. All right. Three summons as we close the sermon this morning. No summons, no sermon. So what's the summons this morning? Three musts. I'm just going to throw out three musts that are essential if you're going to pursue holiness and joy. I assume you want holiness. I assume you want real hope. I assume you want emotional stability and spiritual vitality. What are at least three things that must be true in your life? Number one, you must be born again. You must be, Jesus said, John 3, you must be born again. That means I have to repent. I have to hate my sin. I have to hate what I was in that sense, and I have to embrace the gospel of Jesus, and I have to be born again. I believe Jesus is the only way, and that gives me a brand new status. What is that new status? One with Christ, in union with Christ, his Holy Spirit's alive in me, and I have a new standing. I'm a new creature. I look and sound differently. Secondly, if I'm going to pursue holiness, I have to remember that sin is alive in me, and true Christians are in a battle. Sadly, many, many people who say they're Christians forget that they're in a war, and sin is taking a toll on their lives. Ladies and gentlemen, and, and this is something I do. I have to remind myself regularly of the terrible consequences of not killing sin on a regular basis in my life. And what's at stake if I don't keep up a vigilant effort against it? That giving in to sinful tendencies and giving in to sinful patterns may destroy my marriage, my reputation, my health, my children, my joy, and my life. I have to be reminded I'm in a battle. And the last must, the third must for pursuing holiness is I have to fight the battle against ungodliness and for holiness with the right weapons. This is not a self-help program. Christianity is not a roll up your sleeves and try harder thing. It's a gospel thing. And the only way to fight the battle for holiness is to have the right weapons. And let me give you three that are critical according to the Bible. Scripture, prayer, and your church. Scripture, prayer, and community. Biblical community. People that are in the Scriptures 
young people that are praying and people that are in fellowship in a local church rarely drift off course because those are the weapons. Those are the tools that the Holy Spirit gives us to pull us forward in the fight for joy. And that is why they are so absolutely critical. Fight the battle for holiness, church. Fight the battle for holiness because it is a battle for joy and hope. And that is what Peter is all about. Father, we thank you for Peter. What a, what a story of transformation in his life. We thank you for the difference between Peter in the Gospels and Peter in the book of Acts. And a reminder that no matter what we've done, if we're still alive and breathing, there's hope for redemption, hope for forgiveness, hope for transformation, hope for a turnaround. Thank you. You are a God of second chances, a God of third chances, a God of a hundred chances, as long as we're alive and breathing. As we sing, may we sing differently than we would have an hour ago because we've been in your presence through music and through time in your word. We love you. Pull us forward. And for those here today who are not saved, may this be the day of their salvation. In Christ's name, amen.